My name is Harold, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, it hadn't been necessary for me to have a drink alcohol since February 1970. <clears throat> I take absolutely no credit for that. I had the extraordinary good fortune to walk into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I sat down. And I took advantage of everything that was being given away. My home group is Monday Night Back to Basics in Annapolis, Maryland, which is the best group in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that, Maurice. <laughs> and, and I can't think of any place I'd rather be on a Sunday morning talking to a room full of drunks. Um, <clears throat> I, have to, I have to thank Maurice and his whole committee for asking me down here. I come to sessions, have been coming to sessions since uh, 1989, and it's kind of like my little mini vacation, and I love it, and I, and I love the atmosphere here, and it's nice to get a free ride for a change. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to see so many Al-Anons here. <laughs> I love Al-Anon. Uh, Al-Anon, they have the same problem we do. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, Alanons have slips. Did you know that? Alanons have slips. That that fleeting moment of compassion. <laughs> I want y'all Alanons throwing nothing up here at me, but I love Alanons. I never will forget. <clears throat> I was out in um, Minnesota somewhere, and we were talking. And there's a an old old time Alanon. Her name is Arbutus O'Neill. She and Lois started out Alanon. And I never forget. Uh, uh, there were they were. She she told a story about the time she was at a conference, and this and there was a bunch of recovering people uh, there uh, from uh, the uh, treatment community, and uh, there were doctors and counselors and therapists and all the rest of it. And one of these guys got up, and he told a story about how he had treated an alcoholic for a year. Uh, and, and the guy had stayed sober for a year. And then at the end of the year, they celebrated his wife gave him a bottle of liquor. <laughs> and Arbutus went up to the guy after the meeting and said, uh, did you ever tell the guy's family about Al-Anon? Or did you ever talk to the family afterwards about the disease of alcoholism? And the doctor said, no. He said, well, you ought to quit telling that story. You make you sound like a damn fool. <laughs> <clears throat> they have the same problem. Um, they're not alcoholics, but they un understand alcoholism. Um, it's been a, a real, real pleasure to be here, this lead, listening to all the speakers, and, 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 and I really, really identify with a lot of them. I remember uh, the other night, um, uh, Dick's wife, uh, <laughs> Well, Peggy was, was, was talking about that bird that got her. Well, we got, yesterday we were out on a beach and they got us. I'm glad that, that we weren't at a meeting. Uh, but the, uh, the speakers have all been outstanding and I've really enjoyed them and I learned a lot. I always do. I've had the extraordinary good fortune to serve as a trustee on the Board of Trustees of Alcoholics Anonymous and I got an opportunity to read a lot of Bill Wilson's writings. A lot of his writings that aren't even published. And, and it, it, it always amazes me the, the insight 
and the foresight that Bill had when, when he started to put this thing together. If you ever notice, Bill always talks about Alcoholics Anonymous. Whenever he talks about Alcoholics Anonymous, he always refers to it as our society. Our society, a society of men and women who share their strength and hope and experience so that others can get well. And, and I think that the, the message of Alcoholics Anonymous has been that way since, since time began. I've had the extraordinary experience of traveling all over the world as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've, I've, there's not a lot of places I haven't been. Uh, I, I remember once <clears throat> I was in um, Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, when I got into Edinburgh, the day I got in, my host uh, called me on the phone and asked if, he, if I felt like going on a 12-step call. And I said, sure. So he picked me up and we drive out to St. Andrews Golf Course. Anybody's ever seen it? It's a fantastic place in these huge estates all around it. And we go inside the house and the person we're 12-stepping was a member of parliament. <laughs> and the guy was drunk as a coot. <laughs> he was crawling around on the floor drunk as a skunk. I got to tell you, Brett, they puke just like we do. <laughs> We gathered this guy up and we took him, took him, actually it was England's 50th anniversary at the time, and I was speaking in Blackpool, England, and we took the train and took him down to Blackpool, spent a week with him. I don't know if that guy is sober till today, but I'll never forget that experience. And, and I've had experiences like that all over the world. And, and to me it just, it just demonstrates that Alcoholics Anonymous will work. Just as our book tells us, for anyone, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances, I guess if there's a hook to it, you have to want it. You have to want this in order for it to work for you. I think that Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill said once said that no one invented Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is like a giant tapestry. And if you look at a tapestry on one side of it, you see a beautiful picture. But if you look behind it, you see a thousand threads going in a thousand different directions. And if you pull a thread over here, the picture will change over here. If you pull a thread over here, the picture will change over here. And all those thousands of threads are the members of Alcoholics Anonymous that make up this beautiful picture. We are a mosaic in progress. And I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous is for us. And as Bill once said that, we are responsible. We are responsible. He once said that if AA is ever destroyed, we'll do it to ourselves. If we don't remember where we came from, if we don't remember our traditions and own them and, and, and talk about them and make sure newcomers understand what they are and why they're so important to us. I want Alcoholics Anonymous here for my children and my children's children the same as you do. And the only way that's going to happen is if we ensure it. We are, we are the ones, we're the keeper of the flame. And if we don't do it, it won't happen. I think that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no idea of the scope and the breadth of this thing. If, if it's, it's, it's nice when we go to our meetings and we sit down and we see newcomers come in and they sit down in a very short time, you see, you see the, 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 the light go on and, and they change and they begin to smile from in here and not with their teeth. And you know that 
that there's something that's going on here. And while no one can really explain how it works, we know that it really does. We can look around the room this morning and see the happy, smiling faces. And we know that God is in his heaven and all's right with the world. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is here for each and every one of us. I don't think that anyone, whoever came to Alcoholics Anonymous, certainly not I, when I first walked in here, had no idea of any of that or what it was or how it would work. I don't think anybody does. When you walk into the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time and you look around and you see a lot of strange people, you wonder, what are these people doing here? I, I, I love the story. Um, uh, uh, I think Sandy Beach told me this story. He said that, no, it was, uh, uh, Ernie, Ernie the attorney said that uh, this guy died and went to heaven. <clears throat> and he got up to heaven. Um, he saw St. Peter's. And St. Peter's had asked him for his name. And he gave him his name and checked him off. He had him in the book. And St. Peter asked him what religion he was. And the guy said, well, I don't have any religion. And, and St. Peter said, well, you have to have a religion. You can't get in heaven if you don't have a religion. So he says, come with me. Takes him down the hallway and he opens the door and he opens it and he looks inside and there's a bunch of people and they're on their knees and they look very grim and very solemn. <laughs> and he says, well, who are they? And he says, those are the Protestants. And he says, well, I don't think I want to belong to those. <laughs> he says, never mind, come down the hall. He took him down the hallway and he came to another door. And he opened the door and there's a bunch of people and they're on their knees and they got beads and they're counting beads and they're praying and they don't look very happy. And he said, well, who are they? He said, well, those are the Catholics. He said, well, I don't think I want to belong to them. And he said, well, come with me. And he took him down the hallway and he opened the door. And there were a whole bunch of people in there. And they're laughing and joking and hugging and kissing and just having a wonderful time. And the guy says, well, who are they? And St. Peter says, we don't know. They won't tell us. <laughs> they, they say they're anonymous. <laughs> I know how that guy felt. Come into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and you know immediately that, that there's something going on here. There's a power here that sort of precipitates down over us. And all of a sudden things begin to change for us. And that's the way it was for me. And, 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 and I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> I grew up on the east side of Manhattan in a section of New York called Spanish Harlem. Now, some of y'all have heard this story, so you're going to hear it again, so just get ready for it. <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't changed. And, and growing up in New York, in the streets of New York like I did, you grow up very quickly, or you stand a good chance of not growing up at all. My old neighborhood, by today's standards, they would probably consider me an entrepreneur. <laughs> in those days, I was a hustler. <laughs> I used to find stuff before it officially got lost. <laughs> Somebody reminded me to make sure I said that. See, my old neighborhood, if it was small enough, I just stole it. If it was too big to carry, I lay down next to it and claim it. <laughs> I never will forget one time they sent some social workers in there to study us. <laughs> 
One of them asked me how far it was to the subway. Told them I didn't know nobody ever made it. <laughs> Fact. You, 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 you come up out of an environment like that, you, you understand a day at a time. <laughs> you knew that, you know, philosophy in the street growing up was do unto others before they do unto you. See? <clears throat> the thing about it was, when I was a kid growing up, I didn't have really, you know, we went to church. And, and I think everybody does. Everybody in here, when you're a child and your, your parents say you're going to church, you don't have nothing to say about it. They take you by the hand, they take you to church, and you go to church. Well, they did that. We went to church. And when I went to church, I listened very carefully to what the preacher said. And what I heard him say was, God was somebody you could make a deal with. Yeah, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And that was my understanding. And that was pretty much how I lived my life. Every time I got into a jackpot, get me out of this. I won't do it again. So when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I began to hear this, this, this concept of a power greater than ourselves, it was alien to me. I had no idea of that or what it really was. And I think for me it was a good thing because I had to be able to learn all over again of what a power greater than myself really was. <clears throat> when I was a little kid and growing up in New York, I was boxing. I did a lot of boxing when I was a kid. You had to learn. You had to learn how to fight or run. It's good if you know how to do both in, in my neighborhood. But I was boxing. And, 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 and I, had, uh, I, had a, I had a fundamental philosophy as a youngster growing up. I was a small, scrawny little kid. And, and, but I was mean. <laughs> and, 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 and my philosophy was very simple. If you interfered with me in any way, you had to fight. Simple as that. And and I might I might lose I might lose, but you might lose an eye or an ear because I'd kick and bite and scratch Mike Tyson and have nothing on me. <laughs> and after a while, people would say, "Leave that kid alone. <laughs> He'll still sneak up behind you with a brick." And and what happens? And I think it happens to all of us. I put this little wall out here. And any time somebody would try to get close to me or get to know me a little bit, I put another brick in that wall. And you get to learn, try to find out a little bit about me, and I put another brick in that wall. And pretty soon that wall got higher and higher and higher. And it wasn't until I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that I realized nobody could get to me because of that wall. But I was behind the wall, and I couldn't get out. And, and I used to run into that wall. I used to hit that wall 14 times a day till I figured out I could go around. I love the story my sponsor used to tell about how you could tell the difference between a normal person and an alcoholic. Uh, this is an old story, and I know some of y'all have heard it, but I like the way I tell it, so I'm going to tell it. <laughs> there's two doors at the end of a hallway. And over one door, there's a sign that says, Peace and Happiness. And over the other door, inside the other door, there's a guy with a baseball bat. Well, a non-alcoholic walks down the hallway and he sees the two doors and he walks through the door and there's a guy in there with a bat, hits him right in the head. He comes out, goes across the hall, goes through the door that says peace and happiness and has peace and happiness for the rest of his life. The alcoholic walks down the hallway, sees the same two doors, walks through the door and there's a guy with the bat, hits him right in the head. Turns around, comes back down the hallway, turns around, goes back up the hallway, same two doors, 
walks right through the door, and there's the guy with the bat, hits him right in the head. Turns around, comes back down the hallway, walks up the hallway. This time he stops, and he thinks to himself, maybe he won't be in there this time. (laughs) Maybe I can get away with it. He walks through the door, and the guy with the bat is gone. The alcoholic goes looking for him. (laughs) That was me. I hit that brick wall. (laughs) Hit that brick. You know, when I got sober, I went back to school, and I went to college. I got a couple of degrees, a graduate degree. And I'm not sure I really learned much until I really walked in here. <laughs> I don't think I learned. I learned how to say, oh, really, instead of no shit. <laughs> the thing I think is important was that I didn't want people to get close to me. I didn't really want people to find out who I was. And I think that's typical of us. We keep to our own counsel. We think we know what's best for us. And we go through our whole life just surviving and and reacting and never really understanding what life's terms are. And, and, And I think that's the alcoholic. And then we compound it with alcohol. And And alcoholism is a disease that will protect itself. Alcoholism is a disease that says there's nothing wrong with you. And so I had no idea, even in those early days. And I was drinking then. Growing up in the streets of New York, we drank, we drank. In my neighborhood, if you didn't drink, people didn't trust you. Everybody drank. And nobody really got thought much about it. And I saw the drunks in the street, and, and we talked about it and laughed at them. And nobody really, really understood alcoholism. I didn't know until I came into AA that my father was an alcoholic. My father was a kind, loving man. Taught me how to read Dostoevsky and, and the, the Rubiettes of Omar Khayyam. I read and I loved him. <clears throat> but he would go out and he'd come back and I didn't recognize him. Didn't know who he was. He'd scream and holler and throw things and all the kids would run and hide. And I didn't realize until I came into AA that that's what alcohol does to us. It changes us. It changes our behavior. It changes who we are and how we act and how we behave. It had no meaning for me then until I came here and I understood today. And I had the, I had the, 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 the way Alcoholics Anonymous allows me to make those kinds of amends, I was able to reconcile my father's behavior. And I understand today. And I think it's one of the great privileges that we have at Alcoholics Anonymous is to get an understanding. And so I, I, I continued on. I continued on. I went, I went through, through all the public school systems in New York. And then <clears throat> all of a sudden Vietnam broke out. And I didn't want to go in the Army. Did not want to go in the Army. So I did the cool, slick things. <laughs> I joined the National Guard. <laughs> And, and I joined, I joined the old 369th. The 369th group was the oldest military organization in New York at that time. As a matter of fact, the 369th group, uh, was the same unit that rode up San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War. I met guys that had been drinking since they rode up San Juan Hill <laughs> with Teddy Roosevelt. 
in the Spanish-American War. So I came in, and, and it seemed like the minute I signed, <laughs> signed those papers, I wound up. I had to get my mother to sign the papers. I wasn't old enough. And, and I went in on active duty, <clears throat> and uh, we got federalized. But I had gone to high school, I had gone to a vocational high school, and I learned electronics and electrical technology. And so the unit went overseas, and I went to Texas. I went down to, down to a place called El Paso, uh, Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. And, and, and I'll never forget it because it's right on the border of the Rio Grande, right across from Juarez. And, and I think that, um, <clears throat> Probably, if I could pinpoint my drinking, it probably started about there. We used to be able to go across the bridge into Juarez. I think it cost a penny to go across the bridge. And, and, and you could buy, I used to buy a, a, a drink down there that was Oso Negro Gin, or Black Bear Gin. This cost 44 cents a quart in those days. And I'll never forget once we were wandering down the streets of Juarez breaking gin bottles on the on the uh, lamppost, which the Mexican police take a very dim view of. <laughs> and we wound up in a Mexican jail. <laughs> and, 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 and I'll never forget it. When I was a little kid and you went to the movies and you saw these Earl Flynn movies and they'd be uh, uh, on a pirate ship and they'd be sword fighting and then they'd catch them and throw them in the dungeons. And you see the chains on the walls and these big blocks they stick them on. I used to think that was make-believe till I got into a Mexican jail. <laughs> the thing about it is that my CO, I, I was boxing, and my CO was a fight fan. And he came and he got me out. Got me out. <laughs> and I think that that's really the tragedy of the alcoholic, because we can get into some of the damnedest things, and somehow we managed to get out. And never realized I would get into those things in the first place. I never will forget once they asked me to leave jail. <laughs> Fact. They asked me to leave. Little town upstate New York, sitting on a curb, sucking out of a wine bottle. Police came by and said, get in. Got into their car. They took me to their brand new jail. Put me in a cell. I laid down, lit a cigarette, fell asleep, and the mattress caught on fire. <laughs> they took me out of that cell, took me across the hall, put me in another cell, laid down, lit a cigarette, the mattress caught on fire, and the guy came in there and said, you have to leave. <laughs> and they put me out. I was indignant. I really didn't want to go. It didn't occur to me until I came in here how bizarre that was. <laughs> we, we have a disease that will say there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. And, and so, and, and, and I got into trouble all over the place. I remember they sent me up to uh, the Guided Missile Center in Huntsville, in Redstone Arsenal, Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, I was in, I was in, in, in Huntsville. And, and we were studying guided missiles. As a matter of fact, I'm probably one of the few people <laughs> in the United States that know how to arm a barometric fuse for a hydrogen warhead. They taught me how to do that. <laughs> I used to wonder what would happen if I was to get drunk one time, hit that console, <laughs> but none of us would be in here. <laughs> but they sent me down to Redstone Arsenal, and, and, and I was living off the post. And I'll never forget, because we used to go in town. They used to have what they call Paul Richards Tuesday. You could get a shot of booze for a quarter, and a steak dinner was about a dollar and a half. 
And I went into town and, and went into the, to the uh, officers' club and got and got pretty well fired up. And I was on my way back to back to back home, and something told me to turn around and go back out on the post. And and I went back and I made this what I consider this fantastic new turn. You know, I did all the New York slick stuff, checked the rear view mirror, looked all around. I thought about this for years, and there's I could figure it out. They had to be in the trunk of my car. <laughs> Because as minute I turned around there, they were two big six foot six Alabama state troopers. It is I spent most of my life in law enforcement. <laughs> it is not a good idea to argue with state troopers under the best of circumstances. But for me to argue with them in Alabama is insane. <laughs> the, the thing about it is I got away. The guy took one look at me to let this one go, get him out of here, and they let me go. We get into some of the damnedest things and never realize how we get into them in the first place. And I got into trouble like that all over. Finally, we, the unit came off active duty and I came back to the South Bronx where I was living. And I did another really alcoholic thing. I got married. <laughs> and the only reason I got married was because my brother got married. And, and the thing about it is that alcoholics marry beautiful people. We always do. And they usually become our greatest enablers. And, and, and I married a beautiful, beautiful person, and we began to raise a family. And when I came, came off active duty, <clears throat> came back into the community, you know, I had a lot of good skills. I came out of there as a chief warrant officer. I had a good rank and, and a lot of good skills, but there didn't seem to be a big demand for people that knew how to arm barometric fuses in the South Bronx. <laughs> so I took a test, and I'm a good test taker. I took a test, and I wound up on New York City Police Department. Now, when I was a cop in New York, I, I, I walked the beat on 125th Street <laughs> in Lenox Avenue, which is where I grew up. <laughs> I knew every pimp, every prostitute, every dope dealer in New York. They see me coming, they wave. <laughs> I used to lock guys up for being drunk, and they'd have to carry me in the courthouse. <laughs> And, and, and the thing, the thing about it is that, you know, you, 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 you work on a job, people cover for you. <laughs> you know, they, they, they'll cover for you. And, and I used to get away with all kinds of stuff. They, sometimes they just put me inside and say, sit by the desk. The thing, the thing is, I think that, uh, it, it was never occurring to me that, that this progression was going on. And I was running into trouble at home. By this time, I had two small children. And, and, and the children needed things and my wife needed things and I would spend the money up. I would spend the money and, 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 and she would need, uh, food or clothing for the children <clears throat> and I didn't have it. And, and I, I'll never forget it was, it began to, the, the chronic disease of alcoholism will cloud your mind and it wasn't, it didn't occur to me the problems and the devastation that I was causing to my family. I remember coming home from work and, and I would walk in the house and my wife would have prepared a very nice meal. And, and I would close up and I would go in the back of the, back of the house and lock the door and start to drink. And, and it wasn't that I didn't love my family. I know I did. I loved them dearly. But I couldn't, I couldn't promise that I would do something. I couldn't say I'm going to take you to the movies on Saturday or take you to the circus or the ball game. Because I knew by Saturday I'd be drunk and I wouldn't do anything. 
And so I just drank and drank. And the bills piled up and the, and the problems piled up. And I got into more and more difficulty. <clears throat> and and, and, and I, you started to get the, the phone calls. And, and uh, I used to hate to open the mailbox because you'd open the mailbox and they, the letters, these letters would be with the big letter, red letters on the outside say, pay up or die, you know. And, 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 and my wife was, was, uh, chronically complaining that, that I wasn't doing this and I wasn't helping the children and I wasn't, and the job was after me and I wasn't sure. They like you to show up from time to time and, and, and I wasn't doing any of this and everything seemed to be coming down on me. And then one day, and if you can do this, you can take this disease to the moon. One day it occurred to me. It was all their fault. It was all their fault. Now, if they'd stop bothering me for this money and stop asking me for doing these kinds of things, everything would be all right. And so one day, I just walked out. I walked out of my house, and I left. <clears throat> I, I'm devastated until the day. Every time I think about that, I have a wife who loved me and children who love me. And I walked out, and I wound up living in the street, living in one room. And, and I'm sure you've seen the, 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 the picture around the rooms where, where there's a man sitting on a bed and, and two guys are talking to him and, and, and a dangling light bulb. And that was me. That was me trying to find peace of mind. And I, 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 people knew me in the community. I, they'd be, I was living in one room and I had a home and a family to go to. And I would wander around the streets and panhandle and, 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 and uh, people would know me, give me a few bucks, and I would get drunk. And finally, I couldn't even afford the room, and I wound up living in the street, living in this dark basement. And this, this, this I'll never forget it because it, I, it had a dirt floor with an automatic burner in, in a furnace in the basement. I was living in this basement, and and every time the burner would fire, I'd hear Handel's Messiah. <laughs> I, the whole hallelujah chorus. I hate the thing till today. But I'll never forget while I was in that basement. <clears throat> one day, one day I came to. And, and I looked around. And I thought to myself, what are you doing here? Why, why are you in this basement? I come from a good family. I have a relatively good education. What are you doing in this basement? And I had no real answer. I had no answer for that. And, and, and I did what I always did when I got into a jackpot. I was going to pray. But I prayed like I always prayed. <laughs> you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And nothing happened. At least I thought nothing happened. I understand today that God was there. God had never gone away. God was in that basement with me all the time. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, the other big book, is in Ecclesiastics. And the Ecclesiastics say, they write, for everything there is a season and a purpose for everything under the heaven. There is a time to be born and a time to die. And I believe that there is a line somewhere. There is a point beyond which God will not permit us to endure pain. And I believe we all come to that point. At some time. And when some of us reach it, we die.
And when some of us reach it, we find our ways into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. But whether we die or whether we come here, God has arranged that we don't have to suffer anymore. One of my favorite writers is Walter Benton. And in one of his writings, he describes what happens to us. He says, our days are of time and hours, and as the clock hand turns, a circle closes in upon us. And a black, timeless night sucks us in like quicksand and receives us totally without a rain check or a parachute or a key to heaven or a last long look. And the alcoholic spirals down and down and down and down. And then for some inexplicable reason, God reaches in and plucks some of us out and sets us into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've long since stopped trying to understand why some of us are here and some of us are not. I believe God has a plan and we're all part of it. And that, that wherever we are, whatever happens to us, God has a plan and we're a part of it. I believe we were all born perfect children of God. We will always be perfect children of God. Nothing can ever change that. No matter where you go or whatever happens to you in life, you'll always be a perfect child of God. And what happens to us is that life impacts on us and convinces us that we are less than perfect, less than perfect children of God. And as we come in through our, go through our process, through our recovery process, we begin to see that God is not there, out there. God is right here. And all we have to do is remove the blocks and allow the sunlight to shine through. I had no idea of any of that. None at all when I was in that basement. Had nothing and no idea of that. All I wanted to do <clears throat> was stop the pain, however it was, whatever happened. And it's strange that the way God moves and works in our lives. What happened was, <clears throat> one day I had managed to hang on to my chauffeur's license and I was running dumps out to, actually it was the same dump site that they had not, that they used for 9-11. It, it was a, a dump site way out in Tippin of Staten Island. And and uh, I was running dumps out there, and on my way back to the yard one day, I blacked out and almost ran the truck off the road. Nothing serious happened. Cops came, and um, they uh, suggested that I go down and have an x-ray just to be safe. So I went down, went to the hospital, had an x-ray, and forgot about it. Next morning, I was sitting around with some of my colleagues, and we had just invested in a bottle of wine. And we get this phone call, and the woman said that I had to come to the hospital right away. Well, I tried to explain to this lady, I just invested in this bottle of wine, and I wasn't going nowhere. <laughs> and what she said was that you have to come down right away, or we're going to send the police out to get you. And the last thing I needed was cops looking for me. So I went down there, not to make a long story longer, it turns out I had tuberculosis. And I had it so severely, they wouldn't let me go back home. They put me in an ambulance and they ran me out to the tip end of Staten Island, a place called Seaview Hospital. And I spent the next year and a half out in Seaview Hospital. 
And I understand today that that was God moving in my life, and it was probably the best thing that ever happened. And it may seem strange saying getting tuberculosis was a good thing, but for me it was. Because while I was in the hospital for the first time in my entire life probably, that I stopped long enough to really check the record. And I look back, and I saw every single time I got into any difficulty, any time I went to jail or got into a fight or lost a job, or any time something bad happened to me, I was either drinking or I was drunk. And, and, and somehow the cement block up here lifted, and the message went through, there's something wrong with you. It has to do with alcohol. I have to tell you, nobody came running down the hallway with a donut and a cup of coffee saying, hey, we got an A meeting in here. <laughs> what happened was I, I, had, I was in the ward, uh, and, and the supervising nurse in my, in, on the ward in, in the hospital, in Seaview Hospital, was one of you sneaky people is what it was. <laughs> And she was watching all of my shenanigans. I love her today. Martha Lyles, she's passed on. Beautiful lady. And I'll never forget, I was sitting, the day before I was to be discharged, I was sitting on the side of the bed. Martha came in, and, and she saw me sitting there very quiet, very subdued, which is not my normal state. <laughs> and she asked me what was the matter, and I told her. Told her I was afraid. I was afraid to go out. And she asked, and I, and I told her why. And, and she asked me if I really wanted help. And I think for the first instance of grace really coming into my life, I really told the truth. I was afraid. I was afraid to go back. I knew that the moment, while I was in the hospital, I was in a protected environment. I had everything done for me. I knew the minute I stepped outside, I'd be riding that rat race again. I'd be running just like Alice in Wonderland, running twice as fast to stay exactly where I was. And I was afraid, and I told her that. And she asked me the question, I expected, we all get asked in one form or another, do you really want help? And I said I did. I really wanted help. And so she arranged for me to get to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I'll never forget that. <laughs> it's 30, almost 37 years ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. It was in the old Alton Boy Elton. Pat, you remember Alton Boy Eltonville? One of my old Staten Island buddies, Pat, is here today. And, and, uh, um, I, 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 Amboy Elkinsville is down on the tip end of Staten Island. I don't know if any of you ever remember the John Birch Society. Well, the John Birch Society started in Staten Island. That's probably the most right-wing, radical, <laughs> uh, political organization in the world. Well, they got people in the South Shore of Staten Island that think the John Birch Society are liberals. <laughs> And that's where I went to my first meeting. I walked into the meeting down in the South Shore of Staten Island, and the moment I walked into the room of Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew there was something wrong. I knew there was something wrong. It was February, and there were guys in there that had on white shoes. White shoes in the wintertime. People that I come from don't wear white shoes in the summer. And I said, and then <laughs> there were some really strange people uh, in there, and, and they, were, they were talking about all kinds of different things, and I, I had no idea. But a guy walked up to me, and he showed me this book. It wasn't this book, but it was a book like that. 
And he said, I don't know how he knew I was a newcomer. <laughs> he just walked up there. He said, he showed me this book, and he said that everything that you will ever need is in this book. Well, I had just come out of the hospital, and everything I owned I carried out of there in the shopping bag, and that had a hole in it. And and I figured that if everything I needed was in this book, I read this book, I figure out how to get a loan out these people. <laughs> so, so I read it. I read that book from cover to cover. And I came back a week later and, and I went up to the guy, his name was Ellie Andrew. God bless him. He was my sponsor for fifteen years till he passed. He used to call him my walking stick. And I walked went up to Ellie and I said, Ellie, I can't get no loan out of this book. <laughs> he said, and he said, Yes, you can. And he was right. He was right. I must have read that book a hundred times by now. And and every time I see, I read the book, I see something that hadn't I hadn't seen before. I remember the first time it happened to me. I used to think they changed the book on me. <laughs> and and I would go and complain. I complained to Ellie that that wasn't in there yesterday. <laughs> and what he would what he would explain to me. And God bless him. He explained everything that happened that we did. He explained. And, and he was saying that what's happening to you is your perception is changing. That's what's happening. You're seeing things differently. Your ideas are different. That's what's happening to you. And, and he was right. And so we started on this journey that we all know about. We started down this path. And, and, and what I loved about him, he would always explain to us what we were going to do. He always explained. He would tell us not only what the, what the step was and what the intent of the step was, he would always explain what the results would be. And he talked about this arch we were going to build. He said, we're going to build an arch. And when that arch is completed, we're going to be able to step through into what he called the sunlight of the Spirit. I had no idea what he was talking about. But he said the, the foundation of that arch is the first step because it describes the problem, tells you what's wrong with you. You're powerless. You're powerless over alcohol. That's the problem. He said the cornerstone of that arch is step two because it describes the solution. Come to believe there's a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. He said now the keystone the most important stone in any arch, anybody's ever built an arch knows the keystone is the most important arch, the stone in the arch, because all the other stones lay against it. He said the keystone is the third step. Step of faith. Make a decision. Turn your will and your life over to care of God as you understood him. And you can move on through. So you know the problem, you have no power. You know the solution, find the power. All you need is a direction to go. Make a decision. Turn your will and your life over to the care of God. And he made it just that simple for me. And we moved on through that process. And and I was like most smart-ass prisoners. Every time he would come to something, he would try to explain something to me. I had the year butts, terminal year butts. He would tell me sometimes, just shut up. <laughs> he used to tell me on a regular basis, the three words you never want to hear an alcoholic say is, I've been thinking. <laughs> You know whatever come after that going to be a beauty. 
I, I'll never forget that the first time we went out on a, on a, on a commitment. He used to take us out. He'd load a bunch of us into the car and we'd all go out on speaking commitments. And I'll never forget the time he took us. We used to go down to the Lower East Side, down on the Bowery. There's old, the Bowery Mission. A guy named Bob O'Neill used to run, run that for years and years. And once a month we'd go down there <clears throat> and, and, and nobody would know who was going to speak. And so he, he, he'd, uh, by the time we get there, he pointed to one of us and said, it's your turn, you're talking tonight. It got to be my turn. And so I got down there, and I started to talk. <clears throat> and I was uh, going on, and not saying much of anything, but a guy in the back stood up, and he hollered out, you're full of crap. <laughs> I cleaned that up a little bit. <clears throat> <laughs> and I kept right on talking. I kept right on talking. A few minutes later, the same guy gets up and says, you're full of crap. And, and Bob O'Neill used to sit right where bread is. <laughs> and I said, Bob, what do you think I ought to do? And Bob said, if I was you, I'd just keep right on talking. That guy's been coming in here for six months. That's the first time he said anything. <laughs> Learn the lesson. Never know who you're going to reach. <laughs> so we was going through this journey. Going through this journey. And, and, and I, loved, I loved our process, and we don't have time to really go through it the way he did. But we, we would come. He came, I never forget when we came to, the, to uh, 6 and 7, and, 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 and I, was, I had the great, I was the great I am. And I used to try and give him the 15-cent <laughs> version of my last story. And, and, and he would always stop me and he would say, we're not interested in who you are. We're going to find out who you are not. And we're going to get rid of all of that and who you are will show up. And so when we got to step six, <clears throat> um, he would say, the step six says that we entirely ready to have God remove all his defects of character. Now, I wasn't really sure I wanted to lose all them defects of character. I didn't want to get too honest too fast because the statute of limitation hadn't run out on some of my stuff. <laughs> But he would tell the story. He would say that a farmer can't grow anything. What he does is set up the conditions. He plants the seeds. He waters the soil. He sets the conditions so the change can take place. God will make the plants grow. A doctor can't heal anybody. He sets up the conditions. He diagnoses the illness. He prescribes the medication. He sets the conditions so the change can take place. God will heal the patient. We can't change anything. What we can do is set up the conditions. And when we humbly ask God to remove the defects of character, we've set the conditions. Then all we have to do is get out of the way and let God be God. And it was those kinds of simple metaphors that began to get me through. And all of a sudden my life began to change. In the meantime, my wife had gotten very ill, had gotten cancer and died. <clears throat> and my children were in foster care. And I had, I, I was very, very upset. And I finally, I went and got, uh, did the paperwork and got my kids out of foster care. And I used to pray to God to get my kids back. <laughs> and, my, and Ellie used to say, be very careful what you pray for. <laughs> when God really wants to punish you, he will answer your prayers. He gave, he gave me back my two kids, my two boys. 
And I have to tell you, they're both in AA today. They're both police officers today also. The thing is, is that as I was beginning... <laughs> As I was beginning to, to grow, they were growing with me. They were growing in this fellowship. And, and I began to see the change. I began to see what was happening to me. My life was changing. And I began to see what the benefits of AA. We, we, we talk about the benefits and we talk about the gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's easy to take them for granted because they seem to come so easy to us if we follow this simple process. And they were happening to me. They were happening to me over and over. And I was fortunate that I had Ellie who reminded me that what we have is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And that if we don't protect it, just as God can give you something, he can take it away. And, and so I began to learn. And, and I'll never forget the first time <clears throat> one, my group, my, uh, the group down in Amboy in Staten Island, they had the business meeting. I went to the bathroom and I came back and I was the GSR. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know what a GSR was. <laughs> they made me the GSR. And, and, and I started on that road. I started going up through the structure, the DCM. And then, and then uh, there, there was an opening on the board as a, as a director on AA World Services. That's a corporate board that, that does all the printing for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I became a director on AA World Service. Me, drunk like me, I was chairman of the board, <laughs> handling all your dollars. <laughs> and then in, and in 1989, I got elected to the board of trustees as a, a general service trustee, and, and it's probably been the highlight of my life. And, and I think... <clears throat> As, as a trustee on the board of trustees, we were required to serve on a number of committees. And one of the committees that I served on or requested to serve on, it shows you I'm an alcoholic. I volunteered for it. I'm an old history teacher. I love history. I taught history in high school while I was doing a graduate degree. And so I volunteered for archives. And, and, and that's how I come to read a lot of Bill's writings. And, and, and I read a lot of the things that Bill wrote in the beginning. His letters to J. Edgar Hoover and his letters to Nixon and, and, and I got to meet Lois. God bless her. I met Lois. Lois was one of the beautiful ladies I ever met. <clears throat> beautiful, strong will. She was a little tiny thing, but her voice was, she could hear her down. And as a matter of fact, Lois wanted to, um, to, to write the chapter to the wives in our book and Bill wouldn't let her. And <laughs> he got even, she wrote our own book. <laughs> She was a beautiful, I'll never forget once I was speaking at the Bill W. anniversary in New York at the Hilton. And uh, Lois, uh, there's a room upstairs where, where all the speakers gather before the meeting. And I was there a little early. And I went up to the reception room and Lois was sitting there by herself. And she and I just had a long talk and she would tell me a lot of the things about Bill and, and, and <clears throat> the things that happened in their lives and, and how he... Uh, he had overcome so many different things, his, his depressions and so many other things by the power of God and the power of the room and the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and, and I think that it, it was those, those kinds of things that really began to, to consolidate in my mind what an incredible thing I had fallen into. Just by the grace of God, I had walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I began to learn and teach. And I think probably one of the greatest one of the greatest gifts 
we get in Alcoholics Anonymous is this ability to listen very carefully. And I got that. I got that here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think that for me, it's been probably one of the, one of the greatest gifts that I have because as we were going through this process and I was living with my kids and I was going back to school, uh, <clears throat> I began to, first thing I, I, I got a contract, I mean, I got a license and I became a general contractor. And I started building houses that people could afford to buy. And I did that for 25 years. I built houses, ran, developed houses for HUD. And, and it was such a rewarding uh, experience uh, that I'll, I'll never forget it. It was, it was the greatest experience I had. I'll never forget it was those kinds of experiences and experiences that I had in Alcoholics Anonymous that really allowed me to function. And I think that that's the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about sobriety. As, as like something ethereal, like, like this is esoteric where we want to walk six inches off the ground or go skipping through the tulips. So they think what happened. When you get sober, life keeps coming at you. I mean, it keeps coming at you. It doesn't stop. And I think that that's the real gift that we learn a hard-nosed, practical way to live. That's the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a way of life. And, and that's what I found. I'll never forget, I was a general contractor. And, and I had, was, had some small con, generally when I, when you contract for the government, I was doing some re- renovation for the government, and I usually have to bid out contracts. And, and I had a small contract, and I didn't have to bid over a certain dollar amount. And a guy came to me and asked, could he have the contract? And I said, okay. And I gave him the contract, small electoral contract. Turns out he didn't have money to buy material. He said his wife was sick and his family was in trouble. I fronted him the money to buy his materials. And the guy stiffed me, stiffed me for my money. I tried to find him. He wouldn't answer his phone. (laughs) I went to his house. I couldn't find him. He took my money and ran. Well, now, I was all set to revert. You know, I have some friends in Brooklyn. (laughs) They specialize in kneecapping. At the very least, I was going to back up one of my cement trucks to his house and fill up his living room. I made the mistake of going and tell my sponsor what I was going to do. And he said, no, you, you have to pray for him. Oh, I thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. Where I come from, you do not pray for people who steal your money. By this time, I had gotten just that much confidence in what he said. I believed what he said. And, and so I said, okay, I'll go pray for him. You should have heard this prayer. Listen, God, I'm going to pray for this SOB. I hope he have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing serious, only he shouldn't recover. <laughs> well, I did that. I did that prayer for a couple of, a couple of weeks. And do you know... It wasn't long that that knot in my gut went away. It just went away. I don't even know how. It just disappeared. And that anger and rage that I had went away. And I'll never forget, about a year later, I was having lunch with another contractor, a friend of mine. And he said, you know that guy that stiffed you for that contract last year? I said, yeah. He said, you know he had a heart attack and died? (laughs) I, I, I said, I was praying for that guy. And the guy said, look me right in the eye and said, please, don't never pray for me. 
it took me a long time before I could, they convinced me that, that I didn't have nothing to do with that guy having a heart attack. <laughs> Taught me another lesson. You get be careful what you pray for. But those kind of gifts began to come together for me. Life began to change. And I began to see the really valuable things in life as we learn here through prayer and meditation. Prayer and meditation is probably the most valuable gift that we learn here. And, and, and we learn how to give. I learned a long time ago that our recovery is a spiritual recovery. That's what we have here. I think newcomers need to understand that going in. Our recovery is spiritual. But spirituality cannot occur in a vacuum. Spirituality must be anchored in a bedrock of altruism. In other words, if we're going to grow spiritually, we have to do something for someone with no expectation. In other words, if we're going to grow, we have to give it away to keep it. And I learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's our strength. One alcoholic talking to another. One alcoholic carrying his message. And I think that for me, it's been the, the greatest trip I've ever had, the greatest privilege and honor I've had as being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, as being able to learn and grow and understand who I really am. There are not a lot of people in the world that can say unequivocally and without any question who they are. I'm an alcoholic. I know exactly what that means. It tells me what I can do. It tells me what I can't do. It gives me the parameters that I can live by. And I learned it. I learned that here. <clears throat> I go out to a sweat lodge in a place called Minot, North Dakota. And in Minot, <clears throat> there's a tribe uh, of Indians, they're the Chippewa. And their sweat lodge is out in a place called Turtle Mountain. They're known as the Turtle Mountain Chippewa. And, and I, I go out there, and the first time, I'll never forget, when the first time you go into a sweat lodge, you have to walk up to the fire pit carrying a rock with no clothes on. <laughs> and I'm walking down in front of all these elders, walking up to a fire pit, and one of them in the back stood up, and, and he pointed to me, and he says, Numark Ha. And, and, and I found out later on, he was saying, a walking bear. That's what he said I look like. <laughs> And that became my name, Numaka, Walking Bear. And, 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 and I have a good friend out there, Black Eagle, who tells a story of the wounded healer. And the wounded healer is an Indian spirit. And he doesn't do anything until a warrior is wounded. And when the warrior is wounded, the spirit appears in front of him. And he opens his cloak. And he has a wound exactly like the warrior. And the warrior looks at the spirit's wound, and he gets healed. And the first time I heard that story, I said, that's what we do. That's what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. Every time we show somebody, every time we, we share our strength and our hope and our experience, we show somebody else our wounds, and they get healed. So we are all wounded healers. One of my favorite pamphlets <clears throat> is 
uh, member's eye view of AA. Uh, uh, if you haven't read it, it's one of my favorite prints. It's required reading for all my pigeons. They're all in here. If you haven't, they're all, like, they're all sitting through here. <laughs> if you haven't read it, I would really recommend it to you. Very simply written. And one of the things he writes about in there, he says that nothing that we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous is new. Everything that we do here is as old as time itself. The reason it worked so well for us is how our program is presented to us. It is presented to us as a series of, of suggestions and, recommended, and recommendations and things that we can do or not. And so it's tailor-made for the alcoholic. I love <clears throat> how he ends in, in the pamphlet. He, the, the writer takes kind of a biblical turn. And he talks about the time that John the Baptist was once again in one of Herod's prisons. And while he was in prison, he heard about his cousin, Jesus. And Jesus was out doing all kinds of miraculous things. And John called two of his followers to him, and he said, Go and find Jesus and ask him if he is the Messiah. Ask Jesus if he's the one we've been waiting for. So the two men go out, and they walk with the Lord. They find him, and they walk with him for a while. And then one day they asked him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus didn't answer them directly. What he said was, go back to John and tell John only what you have seen and only what you have heard. Tell John that the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the lame can walk and the poor in spirit have been given the good news. Well, I'm here to make a report to you this morning, if you'll accept it from me. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can tell you for a fact that the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the lame can walk and the poor in spirit have been given the good news. Alcoholics Anonymous have been here. He's here for each and every one of us. Thank you very much.